0: This evening what I'd like to do is take a few moments here and meditate with you on a few passages from the book of Romans and uh, to reflect on what is the gospel? What is all this talk about the cross and the death of Jesus and the resurrection and why is it important? What difference does it make? And I want to use as a a jumping-off point Romans 8, verse 1, which reads like this, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a verse that I think is familiar to many, especially if you consider yourself a Christian and have known Christ for any amount of time. That This is a verse, it's a deep treasure chest of gospel riches that Paul has been laying out in uh, the previous seven chapters in his letter to the church in Rome. And it's a precious verse. It's a precious verse to any believer faced with your own weaknesses, your own failures, and sin. It's It's a permanent reminder that your happiness, your joy, your hope does not depend on you. It depends entirely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, so I want to ask you a question tonight, uh, which may come as a little bit of a, of a surprise, given uh, the, the somber um, character of Good Friday, but I want to ask you, are you happy? Are you joyful? Uh, would you say that your days are marked by deep sense of abiding joy and hope no matter what's going on in your life because of what Jesus has done for you? Are you happy? Are you joyful? If not, then we, we have to stop. And I'm making a bit, of a, a bit of an assumption about you, and I'm actually probably revealing something about me. The assumption I have is that you're probably not. Very joyful. My guess is that perhaps most of your days are not marked by this deep, abiding sense of joy and hopefulness because of the gospel. So we need to stop. And I want us to look at and go back to the very basics of the Christian message what makes it good news. And to do that, I want us to uh, talk about and look at some of these verses to figure out how to bring the cross of Jesus into the very center of. Of your life. And to do that, you need two basic truths, two key principles that Paul teaches us in in the first part of Romans. What he teaches us is that we, first of all, we need to have a true conviction of sin, that you need to experience a true conviction of sin. And second, that we have to rest in God's way of salvation in Christ. If, if you were ever to have this joy, this, this happiness that the Scriptures speak about, that's eternal, we need to have a true experience of conviction and we need to rest in God's way of salvation in Jesus. So, to put it in really simple terms, we have to go down before we can go up. We have to be brought low before we can be lifted up. So first, let's look for a few moments here at the idea of what Paul means by a true experience of conviction for sin. Central to Paul's argument in the first three chapters of his letter to the church in Rome is summarized in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 3 when he says, "'For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God.'" Paul's point here is pretty simple on the surface of it, that he's essentially saying doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, whether you grew up in the church, whether you did not grow up in the church, whether you consider yourself a religious person or religious person, an irreligious person, or to the people whom he's writing, whether you are Jewish or you're Gentile, it doesn't matter. He says there's no distinction. He says no one is righteous. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one person. There is no distinction. Now, perhaps you've heard that before and perhaps you even believe that. But my question for you and for me is, has it humbled you? Has it humbled you? Has it brought you low? Has it led you to despair over even your very best efforts? If not, let me suggest that you've yet to grasp what Paul means when he says there is no distinction. Let me tell you what I mean. Why does Paul say that? Why does Paul not just say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Why does he say there's no distinction? I think the reason that he says that is because we relentlessly compare ourselves to other people. Our first line of defense against Paul's claim, the Bible's claim, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is, essentially, we say, we might not say it out loud, but in our hearts what we say is, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. We compare ourselves. We draw distinctions. We begin to evaluate our own value and worth and standing in the world compared to other people and their failures and their wrongdoing. It's essentially pride looking to justify your existence. So how do you get out of this? How does this whole idea of Paul when he says there is no distinction, how do you stop doing that? How does Paul's claim and indictment of our dire situation take hold and humble you in order to lift you up? I think the only way to to know yourself as a sinner, according to the Scriptures, is not to compare yourself to other people, but to come face-to-face with God's law. Now, most of us, when we hear that word, "the God's law, we think of, the Old Testament, we think of the commandments, maybe especially the Ten Commandments, most of which are negative, don't do certain things. And you might be inclined to think, well, I don't do those things, so I'm not like those other people. Or I haven't done some of the same things other people have. And you, again, you might not say that out loud, but how that works in the human heart is you begin to think you're not a sinner, or at least not like that person. But Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. When asked in in Mark's gospel, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So think of it like this. We tend to use other people as a test. By which we evaluate ourselves and our place in the world, particularly our standing with God. But Jesus gives you a very different test. Here's the test of God's law that Jesus gives you Are you loving God with all your being, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength? Are you loving God with all your being? If not, you're a sinner. That's the test of God's law. And it's the only test that can enable you or set you free even from comparing yourself. It's the only test that will enable you to hear Paul when he says there is no distinction. See, here's the thing. This is the reason that this is the test of tests is that you are made for relationship with God. You are made... To enjoy him and to glorify him, to love him, to receive his love and delight. You were made in his image for perfect fellowship and communion with him. So the real question is do you know God? Do you know him? Is Jesus Christ real to you? Let me ask you some more questions Are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life? Is he the source of your greatest joy? If not, it's sin. If not, according to the scriptures, we are condemned. We are guilty before God. There's a a pastor... Uh, who was in, uh, served in London in the middle of the last century by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. And uh, in commenting on, on these very verses, and then recounting his own experiences with uh, people in his church to whom he has tried to explain this message of free grace, the gospel of justification by faith. This is how he describes what sin really is. He says, the essence of sin is that we do not live entirely to the glory of God. Of course, by committing particular sins, we aggravate our guilt before God. But you can be innocent of all gross sins and yet be guilty of this terrible thing of being satisfied with your life, of having pride in your achievements, and of looking down on others and feeling that you are better than others. There is nothing worse than that because you are saying to yourself that you are somehow nearer to God than they are, and yet the whole time you are not. That is the height of sin because it means that you have never realized the truth about God and the truth about yourself. Now, that's sobering to hear that. It's also a very dangerous place to be Because Jesus himself says he did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. Therefore, a true experience of the conviction of sin under the Scriptures and according to the Scriptures is absolutely necessary to understanding and enjoying and grasping the beauty and the joy of God's grace. So if you do not have a deep conviction of sin, don't move on. Sit with this. Let Paul's words have their way with you until you begin to see your situation as God sees it. Now, that's, as we say, the bad news. We've gone down. We've looked a little bit here at what Paul means by the conviction of sin. But I don't want to leave you there either. I want to help you to see that the cross of Jesus doesn't just lead you to despair, rightly understood and rightly received and enjoyed, it brings you back up, it raises you up to new life. And So we need to see God's way of salvation in Christ. And the good news that Paul gives in these very same verses in Romans chapter 3 for us is found in these words when he says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. So the best way to understand what Paul means here is to ask yourself the question, what do you think about Jesus? What's your view of him? Why do you think he even came to, the, to, the, to earth? And the answer that Paul gives us here is very straightforward. Paul here tells us in this passage that Jesus came into the world to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and to take from us what we cannot get rid of on our own and to give us what he alone can give. He came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. How did he do that? What did he do? Well, first of all, he came to love and obey God perfectly as a human being and to love his neighbor, and even his enemies? Do you struggle with patience, gentleness? Do you struggle with self-control, kindness, forbearance, perseverance? Do you struggle to know when to speak words of truth and when not to? Do you find yourself cold towards God and towards his people, Well, Jesus came to do all of that, to fulfill all of that perfectly for you in your place so that his obedience would become your obedience so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your disobedience. What he sees is the faithful, perfect, beautiful obedience from the heart of his son in your place. So Jesus came to obey in our place, but he also came to suffer in our place. He came to take responsibility for our sins. He came, as we'll see here, as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's what Paul means when he writes in chapter 3, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith, a substitutionary sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice to take that you deserve. You need to you deserve that punishment, and Jesus came to take it for you. Well, Paul is teaching us that on the cross all of our sins have been placed upon Jesus. And God has dealt with them all. He has punished them all there and then on the cross. So that when you become a follower of Jesus and you place your faith in him, what you need to say to yourself over and over is, my sins have been paid for. 2,000 years ago, on that cross, outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus bore the cost for my sin. God has punished your sins in Jesus' And therefore, he can justly forgive you. So therefore, Paul refers and describes God as he is both just, but he's also the justifier. He's just in how he handles and deals with our sin problem, but he doesn't just handle it. He also justifies you. He declares you to be acceptable and righteous in his sight through faith in Jesus. Now, how does all this work? Perhaps one of the best ways in which Paul describes it in one one sentence is in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what he means when he says that. What he means is this, that God gives to us the righteousness of Jesus, and he treats us as Jesus deserves to be treated. Do you see how affirming that is? That in the gospel, you receive the righteousness of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. You see, you receive the love and affection that Jesus deserves. But then, on the other hand, God gives to Jesus our unrighteousness, our rebellion, our selfishness, our pride, and treats Jesus as we deserve to be treated. God transfers Christ righteous to us and declares us righteous on the the basis of Jesus' work. This is how salvation works. This is the way of salvation through faith in Christ. So let me ask you as we come to a close here how does this sit with you? Do you believe this? Have you experienced the conviction of sin? that he speaks of? Have you come to see this way of salvation? And the way that you answer those questions really does reveal what you think. And again, I was helped by uh, reading uh, again from Martin Lloyd-Jones and how he described uh, folks he talked to about this, how they responded when he would ask them, do you believe this? And he writes this, he says, after I explained it all to them, I said, well, well now, are you quite happy about it? Do you, do you believe it? And they say, yes. And then I say, well, then, you are now ready to say that you're a Christian. And they hesitate. And I know they have not understood it. And then I say, what is the matter? Why are you hesitating? And they say, I do not feel that I'm good enough. And at once, I know that in a sense, I've been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian, good enough to be accepted with Christ. To say, I am not good enough, it sounds very modest, but it is the lie of the devil. It is a denial of the faith. You think that you are being humble, but you will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. And as long as you go on thinking about yourself and saying, ah, yes, I would like to, but I'm not good enough. I am a sinner, a great sinner. You are denying God and you will never be happy. You will continue to be cast down and disquieted in your soul. You will think you are better at times and then again you will find that you are not as good as you thought you were. What can I do, you say? Forget yourself. Forget all about yourself. Of course you are not good enough. You will never be good enough. The Christian way of salvation tells you this, that it does not matter what you have been. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. If you are guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin, it does not matter from the standpoint of being justified with God. You are no more hopeless than the most respectable, self-righteous person in the world. Do you believe that? Are you beginning to see how the cross of Christ is the only source of Of true joy and lasting hope. You see, we must go down before we can be lifted up. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to die on a cross. He came down and he was lifted up. And that will be true for anyone who puts their faith in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this good news, this gospel that reminds us again that there is actually great hope in coming to terms with what we really are like. Not trying to hide it, not trying to dismiss it, but seeing it for what it really is according to your law, according to your test. Do we love you? Do we know you from the heart? And we give you thanks that you sent your son Jesus. Your righteousness in human form. To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So that we might become the righteousness of God through faith in him. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.